Lord, we ask you uh, to give ear to our prayers and by your gracious visitation, lighten the darkness of our hearts. And we pray this by our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Uh, Well, the Christmas story is a story uh, that we're familiar with. And even if you're not a regular, even if you haven't been around Christian things your whole life, even if you're newer to the things of Christ, um, I think that most of us are familiar with some of the details of the birth narrative. We, we know that uh, Mary and Joseph were visited by an angel. We, we kind of know how they made their way to Bethlehem. We, we know how Jesus was born in a manger. Uh, we know how some wise men came from the east sometime later to worship him. But there's more to this story that sometimes, even as I read the narrative here in Matthew, I think I jump over. And so in the passage that Zach's read out for us today, if you've got a Bible, keep it out and keep it open. Again, it's on the the slide deck as well. Uh, We're looking at Matthew 2, verse 13 to 23. And it's kind of one big idea uh, that I want you to get as we look at this passage, because there's, there's something that I think is quite profound. And that is this. Jesus was born into persecution. Now, it's not just that I work with an organisation, Open Doors, that are on about supporting persecuted Christians around the world. Uh, It's actually well before I worked with them, uh, noticing things uh, like this, but again, uh, working with Open Doors, kind of just spending time meditating on Christmas and meditating on the first Christmas and the first coming of Christ in those infant years and just how Jesus was born into persecution. Uh, By way of context, uh, we we learn about that in a number of ways in this passage, but by way of context, the Magi, the wise men, they've just left Jerusalem to to begin their journey home. That's prior to the bit that Zach read out for us. Uh, And Herod has effectively forced um, Jesus to, to flee and his family to flee. Where? South into Egypt. And I I think there's something beautiful um, to even reflect upon what it looks like for the Son of God to become a refugee baby in exile, identifying himself with dispossessed people in the world. Uh, Most of you would know that I recently went on a trip to Egypt and I actually thought a lot about this passage while I was in Egypt. And um, most of the places that we went in Egypt, as I've shared a whole bunch of stories over the last couple of months, most of the places were um, Muslim-majority places, places where Christians were in the clear minority and having a really tough time following Jesus where they were. But there's this one particular area that we went to and this one particular town that we went to uh, in East Samulat in the Minya uh, government, in the Minya region, which is a popular stopover for Christian pilgrims uh, on the Holy Family pilgrimage. Um, see, here's the thing. Jesus, Mary and Joseph were actually in Egypt. And this particular place is a place that's considered by many to be a place where they spend a lot of time. Uh, and while we can't be 100% certain on the specific locations that, that Jesus, that Mary, that Joseph visited while in exile, it was interesting just to kind of imagine that while we may not have a Bible verse that says, yes, they spent time in this cave, yes, they spent time in this specific place, oral tradition suggests there are places that were, were known by those locals who ended up becoming followers of Jesus that this was a place where Jesus 
as an infant, spent time with his parents. Uh, There was a particular monastery that we visited uh, in this area where the majority were Christian in this particular area. um, And they were very kind to us and tangible in their acts of kindness to us, but also their devotion to the Lord Jesus. Now, one of the things when you kind of visit a place where Jesus, infant, baby, Jesus from the Holy Family is revered, There are a lot of stories, and I think there are stories that might be true and probably are true. And then there's other stories that are, you can decide. Let me give you one of them. Uh, In this particular place in East Samuel, we were up on top of the hill where the monastery is and in the cave where Jesus apparently spent time. But down the bottom of that particular hill is a spot where Jesus, presumably as a two-year-old, was having lunch, dinner, whatever the meal was with Mary and Joseph, when a boulder came off the top of the hill. And the boulder was coming straight for Mary. And little infant, strong baby Jesus put his hands up and blocked the boulder from landing on Mary's head. Uh, We didn't actually get to see it, but apparently we've still got the boulder. And there's these two little handprints that are inside (laughs) it from where Jesus did that. Uh, True or false? What do you think? Here's what I think. I think that's more of a picture of Jack-Jack Jesus. Who's Jack-Jack? Remember the Incredibles? Jack-Jack is the superhero baby in that family. Um, That's actually not the view on Jesus that we get given in the New Testament. Jesus is fully God. But Jesus kind of steps aside from his glory and his power in some sense and enters into the world. You know the song, uh, Away in a Manger, No Crying He Made. That's ridiculous. That's not the view we're given in the New Testament of Jesus. Of course he cried. He entered into our humanity. He was a weak, frail baby. He didn't use his superpowers as two-year-old Jesus to block that boulder from landing on Mary's head. And yet we meet a Jesus who is actually vulnerable, who is on the run, who is running from the authorities. You know, we, we, we consider him who is born into persecution. Pick it up with me in the text and kind of see how significant it is. Verse 13, Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 says, Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son, there's a threat to baby Jesus, infant Jesus, hence they flee. But as you read, oh, look at verse 16. When Herod saw he, that he had been tricked by the wise man, he became furious and sent, and check this out, and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was to fill what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. Now, this is a, it's, it's pretty shocking, isn't it? Not only is this baby chased, but to kind of eliminate any of the options, uh, destroying all these innocent male children in Bethlehem. Jesus is born into persecution. Jesus is a refugee on the run. Jesus is sent off into exile. 
And I guess the, the, the question to consider as we consider that point, that Jesus was born into persecution, is this. Why is it significant that Jesus was born in persecution? Why is that a significant thing? Well, first, we, we see that he's obviously a threat to the rulers of his day. He's obviously a threat to the ruler of darkness. You know, he, he's identifying with his people who are oppressed. These are each certainly true, but I think the significance is even bigger than that. And I think Matthew in these three paragraphs actually shows it to us. The bigger point that Matthew makes is that this is to happen in fulfillment of Scripture. That Jesus is born into persecution. That Jesus is born identifying with an oppressed people. Uh, That Jesus is born in this way is taking a step back and seeing how Jesus is the fulfillment of God's purposes, God's plans and God's promises. You know, if you've got a Bible there, uh, as you kind of flick in Matthew 1, Matthew 2, 3, 4, at least, uh, maybe up into 5 as well, 6, kind of those opening chapters, one of the things that Matthew is really desperate to do, Matthew is writing to a Jewish audience. So people who believe the Old Testament scriptures, uh, people who are waiting for the Messiah, the Son of God to come, the King of Kings. Uh, And so almost every paragraph in these opening chapters, Matthew actually says, This was to fulfill what the prophet said. This was to fulfill what the prophet said. This was to fulfill what the prophet said. There's promise and there's fulfillment. And so the bigger picture of why is it significant that Jesus is born into persecution is that Jesus is coming in fulfillment of all that God has promised. And in particular, have a look with me back at verse 15. Uh, and remained there uh, until the death of Herod, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. This whole scenario is set up for us to see that the fulfillment of that verse ultimately is found in Jesus. Now, where's that verse come from? It comes from the book of Hosea. Uh, Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 and if you were to go back and read Hosea chapter 11 verse 1 it it doesn't obviously to our eyes look like a prediction of the holy family's flight into Egypt. The original reference is not looking forward from Hosea it's actually looking backward from Hosea to earlier in the Old Testament to what the exodus As Hosea comments, out of Egypt, I called my son, he's referring to how God has called his people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt, calling them his sons, calling them his daughters. And so what is Matthew doing here as he even quotes Hosea chapter 11? What he's doing is helping us to see the bigger picture of what's going on and connecting us to that first exodus. Uh, John Stott says that uh, what Matthew is doing, uh, uh, Matthew sees in the story of Jesus a recapitulation of the story of Israel. A recapitulation of the story of Israel. The story of Israel has already played out in the Old Testament. As Jesus comes along, things that were supposed to be true of Israel are truer of Jesus. Things that happened in the life of Israel or were supposed to happen in the life of Israel happen in a better 
more fulfilled way in Jesus. There's four ways that John Stott suggests that the story of Jesus is a recapitulation of the story of Israel. Uh, We don't have time to unpack all of them, but I'm going to quickly mention all four of these. Again, if we had more time and you could even do this in your own time, you could kind of trace these themes through because I think Matthew's gospel speaks to all of them. But here's the four ways that Jesus' story is a retelling, a better story of the story of Israel. First, John Stott says this, as Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the despotic rule of Pharaoh, so the infant Jesus became a refugee in Egypt under the despotic rule of Herod. That's kind of in this passage, right? Uh, Second, as Israel passed through the waters of the Red Sea, so Jesus passed through the waters of John's baptism in the River Jordan. See that in chapter 3 if we were to keep reading. Number three, as Israel was tested in the wilderness of Zin for 40 years, so Jesus was tested in the wilderness of Judea for 40 days. You could see that in chapter 4. And as Moses, number four, as Moses from Mount Sinai gave Israel the law, so Jesus from the Mount of Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, gave his disciples the true interpretation and amplification of the law. Jesus was born into persecution. There's a whole bunch of ways in which we see the story of Jesus is better and fuller and greater. And the ultimate thing that the whole of the Old Testament narrative and the whole story of how God related to Israel finds its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus. I want to particularly pick up, I guess, that first point uh, and kind of the events around of what Stott said. uh, Israel was oppressed in Egypt under the despotic rule of Pharaoh. So the infant Jesus became a refugee in Egypt under the despotic rule of Herod. I want to pick that one up because I think that's kind of the heart of this bigger picture of the promise and fulfillment idea that we see in Matthew's gospel. Uh, That is, in Jesus, there is a bigger, better and greater exodus. In Jesus, there is a bigger, better, and greater rescue from slavery. In Jesus, there is a bigger, better, greater redemption and forgiveness of sins. You see, as you trace the story of Jesus, not just as a a baby, not just as an infant, certainly not as Jack Jack Jesus, but as you trace his story, as you meet him growing up in the Gospels, you see him growing in wisdom and favour, um, with, with God and with man, we see him growing in stature, growing in character. And one of the things that we see about Jesus, and we could uh, turn to chapter 4 and see this in particular as he is tempted in the wilderness, is how unlike Israel Jesus is. Where, Jesus, where Israel sin in the wilderness, grumble, complain. God has rescued them by his mighty and outstretched arm. And they're like, actually, we'd rather go back to slavery. Grumble, 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 grumble. Complain, 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 complain. You know, God has rescued them in and through the Exodus. And remember, in Exodus chapter 32, they're kind of waiting for Moses who's up the mountain. They're like, what should we do? Hey, I've got an idea. Let's all grab our gold together. Let's put it in a big pot. Let's melt it together. Let's make a big cow. And let's bow down and worship the cow and say, thank you, cow, for rescuing us from slavery in Egypt. How foolish. Here are these people who have seen the mighty and outstretched arm of God and yet forget the God who has given them life. 
who has given them breath, who has rescued them to be his own. And yet Jesus, he is the one who does not put the Lord his God to the test. Jesus is the one who always walks in obedience. Jesus is the one who fulfills the law through his perfect righteousness. Jesus lives a perfect life. And that's good news for us. It was certainly good news for Israel and the history of Israel. It was certainly good news for the original recipients of Matthew's gospel and those who heard this message heralded in the first century. And it is good news for us because each of us have sinned against God in thought, word and deed. We haven't lived up to our own expectations, let alone God's holy, righteous expectations upon all that he has made. And so, friends, it's good news that Jesus entered into the world and was born into persecution and went on to grow up and live a perfect life because he has lived on your behalf. He has fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law on your behalf. And that is good news of great joy. And that is good news of great joy that we reflect upon and we celebrate, not just at Christmas time, but as we reflect day by day, week by week, year by year on that perfect life of Jesus, where Jesus is better than Israel. Jesus is better than us. Jesus comes to bring a greater salvation. You know, the ultimate way in which we see that greater salvation. And now we've, we've, we've read the words out of Egypt, verse 15, I called my son. Hosea is looking back to what? The Exodus. How did God call Israel out of Egypt? How did God rescue them by his mighty and outstretched arm? Well, he came in fierce judgment on Egypt on a night of terrible destruction and yet God's people were spared as his sons and his daughters on that night not by anything they actually did but because as God looked at them he saw the blood of a sacrificial lamb sprinkled on the door frame of the homes that they were found in they could be spared because one was sacrificed on their behalf the angel of the Lord the angel of death passed over their homes that they were spared from that terrible judgment in the time of the Exodus. They were rescued and then we see them cross the Red Sea. We see them taken out. We see God victorious. They have been saved because of the sacrificial death of another. Remember, uh, we're going to share the Lord's Supper in a moment. And remember the first time that the disciples shared the Lord's Supper with Jesus. When was that? Not a rhetorical question. Say it louder, Zach. Night before his death. Night before his death, which was the Jewish holiday of? Say it louder, Zach. (laughs) There was one back here somewhere. Passover. Everyone's whispering. Passover. Passover. Lots of us know. Passover. Can you remember the... What was Passover? Passover was this meal that faithful Israel were to eat once a year to remember. To remember that time when out of Egypt I called my sons and daughters. To remember that time of the Exodus. To remember that sacrificial blood of the lamb that was placed on the door frames of the homes that their forebears were in, that they could be rescued through that substitutionary death. Remember what Jesus says? This meal that you're supposed to celebrate every year and remember that great act of redemption, from now on do this in remembrance of me. Aren't those words remarkable? Jesus is saying on the night before he dies... Hey, there's something going to happen tomorrow, guys. Heads up. It's going to be a bigger. It's going to be a greater. It's going to be a better redemption than the one we're actually sitting down to celebrate now. Hey, do Passover if you want. 
Eat this meal. Remember Passover. But remember the greater Passover. Remember the greater lamb who was sacrificed on the cross in our place and for our sin. You know, at one level, uh, we're talking about Advent. We're talking about the first coming of Christ. We're talking about Christmas. We're talking about Jesus being born into persecution. And yet here I am. I'm, I'm talking about Easter. And at one level, you almost want to kind of go, let's not get there too quick. But we actually, when we go back to the narrative of Jesus' birth, we see signpost after signpost after signpost that there was purpose in him coming in the first place. There was purpose in him being born into persecution, to identify with an oppressed people, to come as the one who would be exiled in Egypt and then called out of Egypt to begin His work of redemption that would see him by the end of Matthew's gospel nailed to the tree, nailed to the cross. And friends, that is good news because we are those who have failed to live as God would have us live and are unable to pay the debt that we ought to pay for our sin and rebellion. The good news of the first coming of Christ is that not only was Jesus born, not only did Jesus live a perfect life, but he has died a sacrificial death in our place and for our sin. But more than that, Jesus rose triumphantly from the grave and Jesus offers to all who would but trust in him life after the grave, life beyond the grave. Jesus rises from the the dead. He appears to over 500 people. He ascends back to his father's right hand. And one day he will come. One day he will come to judge the living and the dead. And, And so Advent has to always take us beyond just preparing our hearts to make room for baby Jesus. We, we actually want to prepare ourselves for the first coming of Jesus and all that that entailed. His miraculous birth, his perfect life, his faithful teaching, his incredible miracles, his sacrificial death, his triumphant resurrection, his resurrection appearances, his ascension back to his father's right hand. Advent is a time of the year where we, we get to prepare ourselves and remember that first coming, but also long for that second coming, long for when Christ returns, long for when we see his face, when he does away with all the hard things of this life. You know, in this passage, we, we, we see at least three times in each paragraph, there's a moment where it was said this was to fulfill what was said. And we see that in Jesus, the one born into persecution, we have one who has come to bring an end to suffering, to bring an end to oppression, to bring it to identify with us in such a way that he is the means by which we are freed and we have eternal life, eternal freedom and eternal joy in his presence. There was, um, on our trip to, uh, on our trip to Egypt, we um, certainly went to a place where Jesus apparently went as an infant and the majority of people were Christians. But another place, actually not too far from there, the majority of people are not Christians. And we met one particular pastor, his name was Pastor Karim, uh, and he'd been uh, in regions and areas of Egypt where it's very hard to follow Jesus. He actually grew up in a Muslim family. Uh, and he grew up in a, a village where he would often be awakened at night time by footsteps of police on the roof chasing after extremists. Uh, that was understandably a pretty terrifying environment to be a child, a very hostile place. And yet he gave 
Uh, he, he shared with us that he gave his life to Christ, putting his trust in Jesus. That was a big deal and came at a great cost. And yet he did it in the context of a small discipleship group with a bunch of others who also became Christian. And yet over the years, kind of faced by the hostility of this particular place that they lived, most of the other members ended up moving to Cairo uh, or even uh, where it's safer uh, or even overseas to avoid persecution altogether. Uh, He said he too, as the numbers dwindled from this group of friends who'd all become Christians, were leaving this particular village, he considered leaving as well until he had a dream, as often happens in the Muslim world. And in his dream, he heard the Lord say, a true hero doesn't leave the battle. They stand and fight to the end. He woke, believing that that was God, encouraging him to stay put, to continue to live in a place that's blanketed with great darkness and be a light for Christ in that community. And it was fascinating, some 30 years on uh, from when he first became a Christian, just to hear the impact of his faithfulness, of continuing to stand for Christ, live for Christ, no matter the cost, no matter what was thrown at him. You know, when we asked Pastor Karim if he had a message for the Australian church, he gave us a response. He said this, don't escape from the pain. Accept the challenges, because in the middle of the challenge, God is working. Open your ears, open your eyes, and see how God is working. It's quite a countercultural message, isn't it? I think all of us, any sign of pain, we want to get rid of the pain. We want to run from the pain. There's something quite natural about that, and yet here is this man who's endured much pain, and his message to us is don't escape from the pain, accept the challenge. And see that in the middle of the challenge, God is at work. God is doing a thing. You know, that is a contrast to our experiences. I'm guessing for the most of us, when we suffer, whether it's we suffer because we are a Christian, whether it's we suffer because of something stupid we've done, whether it's we suffer because of something awful that's been done to us, or whether we're just suffering because of the brokenness of circumstances and situations in this life and sickness and death and so on, it is natural and it's even right to cry out, why God? Why this God? Why is this taking place? And yet one of the things I've been struck by the more I learn, not just about those in Egypt, but, but persecuted Christians the world over, who actually see suffering and see it as an opportunity. Not to go, gee, I really love suffering. Woohoo! You know, like foolishly, but to kind of go, God, give me strength. God, help me. I accept this pain. I accept this challenge because I know that God is at work even in the middle of it. You know, one of the things I've been thinking about recently um, when it comes to the persecuted church is, uh, and, and I think there's a danger here as well, and I'm immersed in these stories all the time and reading about them and sharing prayer newsletters and, 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 and meeting persecuted Christians and sharing their stories, it's easy to kind of go, whoa, that is high-level, intense persecution, right? Whether it's Egypt, whether it's Myanmar, whether it's Afghanistan or Somalia, wherever it is, you kind of go, whoa, that's really bad. And then you look at our suffering and our persecution and the things we endure and you kind of go, Ah, that's nothing compared to that, right? And, and, and you can kind of go, that's big, that's really horrible. What I'm going through is really low level, is insignificant, is nowhere near as hard as what the persecuted church are going through. And yet I don't quite think that's the way to look at it. 
you can almost feel guilty that I'm not suffering enough. Guilty that, oh, theirs is worse than mine. I just need to suck it up. I just need to get over it. I don't think that's actually the way we should do it. Yes, let's recognise that this is pretty fiery and pretty intense. But let's actually call this, this is still hard. It's real. It's valid. It's hardship. It's suffering. It's persecution. Whatever category it fits in. And rather than going, this is nothing, that is everything, just get over it, Dave. We actually ought to go, this is something... But boy, that is something. God, would you strengthen this brother or sister up here? Help them endure. Help them keep trusting Jesus no matter the cost. But Lord, thank you for their example. Thank you for their courage. God, I know that this is nowhere near as big, but it's big for me. Help me. Help me to take the same type of courage in the face of fire and persecution and hardship. Help me, Lord. To be courageous as my brothers and sisters are courageous. Does that make sense? And so I think as we look back to this passage and as we look back to Jesus being born into persecution, we thank God that he was because he did it for our sake and for our salvation. He identifies with us in our time of need, in our time of oppression, in our time of being out on the margins. But more than that, Jesus being born into oppression, persecution, the pattern of Jesus' life, the teaching from Jesus is that persecution is a normal part of the Christian life. The Apostle Paul even says in 2 Timothy chapter, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 12, in fact, if anyone wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, they will be persecuted. Persecution is a normal part of being a follower of Jesus. And 2,000 years of church history is littered with story after story of Christians who Put their, people who put their trust in Christ and it costs them everything. And yet they do it because Jesus is worth it. They do it regardless of what is taken from them. They do it regardless of what is thrown at them because Jesus is worth it. And right now, one in six Christians around the world, one, uh, 360 million of our brothers and sisters actually are under the constant threat of persecution for no other reason than they are followers of Jesus. They live fearing their life and yet they live trusting the one who gives life and gives eternal life and will enable them to endure. And so, friends, as we conclude, let me encourage you to look to Jesus, to look to him who was born into persecution. Be thankful that he willingly came on this rescue mission, entered into our world, entered into the story of Israel that brought a better story, a better salvation that's offered to all, not just those who are Jewish by birth, but all who would put their trust in him, who lived that perfect life, died that sacrificial death and was raised triumphantly.